So we truly believe that the easiest access point to healthcare, in particular our oral health, and how we democratize the information starts at home. So that easy and accessible oral healthcare experience is very important, and it has to start from home. That's the starting point, and we mm-hmm. do that with technology. And I think one thing we've seen throughout the pandemic is you know, the behavioral changes and the adoption of technologies surrounding telehealth and virtual care. But this is just expected now. So we really lead our interactions with telehealth and with virtual care because providing access to an awesome, amazing, well-qualified, empathetic professional like one of our hygienists or one of our dentists right from the comfort of your couch has been showing to be a pretty magical moment for patients. Good morning, everyone. This is the Healthy Idea Podcast by Iman and Nico. I'm Iman. And I'm Nico. And on our podcast, we sit down with founders on how they're using new technologies to solve critical health issues that face our society today. We learn more about their journeys into entrepreneurship and how they started their company. We hope to shed light on innovations in health and encourage you to think of what's possible with technology today. Before we get started, Eman and I wanted to ask you to leave a review of our podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Reviews play a huge role in reaching new listeners for the podcast, and it would mean the world to me and Aman if you did. Now with that out of the way, let's get into this week's episode. Welcome back, everyone, to the A Help the Ideas podcast. Today's special guest is Tyler. Tyler, how are you doing today? I'm doing awesome, Nico. Great to be here. Awesome. Great to have you. And of course, I can't forget my amazing co-host, Iman. Hey, Tyler. How are you? Hey, Iman. I'm doing good. How are you? I'm good. Perfect. And so just to get right into it, Tyler, can you tell us a bit more about yourself, your background, and the company that you started? Cool. Yeah. As you mentioned, Nico, my name is Tyler Burnett, and I'm the CEO and co-founder here at Wally Health. We are, very simply put, dental care for modern life. So what does dental care for modern life really mean? I break it down into three things. First, it everything we do starts at home. And we really look at the uniqueness of each and every one of our patients' mouths, teeth, from home. And that starts with our oral health diagnostics or at-home test kits, which then allow us to look at and build personalized plans to address individuals' goals or needs. And we address these goals or needs with very specific product recommendations And all of this, of course, is led virtually by real clinicians. So think hygienists or dentists, similar to a hims or hers or Mm -hmm. row for dental care. That's absolutely great. And I absolutely love that. And I'm sure we'll talk into a bit more about the woes of dental care. But yeah, like I've never really had that opportunity before they get really personalized care, which is exciting. Yeah, look, I think what we're doing and why it's built for modern life, why that's an important tagline for us and it's very core to our mission is it's very different than the traditional system, right? So when we think about the traditional dental care system, what we do at home, what we do when we go visit a dental office, these are things that haven't changed much in in the last several decades. So we're really taking an entirely new look at what we should be doing that's right for patients. And that truly means incorporating technology to first and foremost, start, begin our oral healthcare journey from home, because that's really where everything does begin. No, absolutely. And so I would love to hear about how did you start working on a consumer dental healthcare startup? Do you have a background in dentistry or a specific passion or how did you get into this? 
Yeah, no, I definitely don't have a background in dentistry. I'm just a, I'm a regular guy who had a really crappy dental experience when I had moved out to Boston. Previous to coming out to Boston, I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. I've co-founded a couple companies up in Western Canada, where I'm originally from. And Mm -hmm. Through those two journeys, I really learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about other people. And of course, I learned what it meant to solve problems by building an incredible business based on different technology. And so it was, you know, those two journeys, which kind of brought me out to Boston. I successfully exited both of those companies, the latest one in, in 2015. And I found myself doing work with other startups, other founders in the Bay Area, in the Vancouver, Canada area. And one of those companies had an opportunity out here in Boston. So I moved out here just over four years ago. And a few things happened. So as I mentioned, I'm just a regular guy who had a shitty mm-hmm. dental care experience. But I think it starts from the very beginning. Our oral healthcare journeys are very unique for each individual. And for me, it meant having braces twice. Mm-hmm. When I was quite a bit younger once when I was in high school, which a lot of people have had. But I also had constant problems with my teeth. So I was always getting cavities. The frustrating part about all of this was I was getting cavities, even though I was doing what I was taught to do, which was Mm -hmm. I was going to the dentist every six to eight months. So when I came out to Boston, I was having another tooth issue. I knew pretty much knew what it was, but I knew I had to get it dealt with. And so I went to a dental practice. I had to go through all the challenges here that some of them were new to me. Some of them weren't, but finding a dentist in the Boston area, I was new out here, scheduling an appointment, ultimately just getting my butt in there to have my teeth looked at. The real problem actually happened then, which Mm -hmm. looked like this. I was treatment planned eight fillings when I was only having an issue with one tooth. And I thought it was strange. So I went out, I got a second and third opinion. And I learned that essentially that experience I had just had was a dishonest dental care experience, which is unfortunately far too common. Billions of dollars are spent every year on things like unnecessary fillings. And I was the recipient of that type of experience. For me, again, as an entrepreneur, as a passionate problem solver, I got pretty emotionally driven around that. Yeah, because I was going to ask, how terrible of a dentist experience do you have to have to decide to start your own company around it? But I think that answers it pretty thoroughly. Yeah. No, I think the emotion that gets wrapped up into our oral health care, it comes from a lot of different angles. But definitely when we think of the power dynamic and how us as patients are on the, the other end of that dynamic, when we're going in to see the dentist, when we're trying to figure out how we're going to pay for it and afford it. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, when something dishonest happens, it really drives me, not because of what just happened to myself. Sure, that was crappy and, and I didn't enjoy that at all. But actually, the first place my mind started to go was how many other millions of Americans is this happening to? And that's where I started to dig into the problem space, which ultimately became Wally. Mm-hmm. And then pivoting slightly on that, why? And there are some very a few obvious reasons, but why is dental health so important? Yeah. We get this question all, all the time, right? And I think there's two reasons why our oral health care or our dental health is so important, and they're both very much connected. So number one is our mouth is literally the gateway to our body, mm-hmm. right? So when I say our oral health care is pretty damn important, I think most people do agree, right? So it's not only how we treat our mouth and our teeth and how that affects other parts of our body and our overall health, 
But the flip side to that, too, is when issues arise in other areas of our body, they actually have a tendency to present themselves in our mouth and reflected in things like oral health. So it's this really important gateway or window into our body. And it's unfortunately something that we just haven't had a good history of treating with the care that that it deserves. So when we think about the uniqueness of our mouth is really important, just as it is important when we think about the uniqueness of our hair or skin and all other parts of our body and and how we treat those different areas. Just the other day, I I was buying deodorant and I was scanning the, the ingredient list and I wanted to to ensure that everything was natural because I'm aware of but what I use in my armpit, for example, is going to be absorbed into my body. And that's pretty important. But what we've seen is that when it comes to our mouth, which like literally putting in our mouth and potentially going into other areas of our body, we actually don't often approach that part of our health care or part of our body with the same uniqueness and care that we do other parts. And so that was pretty eye-opening to myself and the rest of our team. So that's a long way of saying that's part one of why our oral health care is really important. But number two is let's talk about where we're at as a country and the people within the country and sort of the problems we're seeing here. So the CDC says nine out of 10 people have things like active cavities, tooth decay, gum disease, pretty shocking stuff. So not only is our oral health important, important for the rest of our overall health, but we're not doing the right things about it. And that's in the numbers of issues we're having. So this is boils down to two reasons why we're having all of these issues. First, people aren't going to the dentist. Okay. So we have this traditional system in place. It's a one size fits all. It's definitely not customized. It's definitely not based on the uniqueness of our mouth. And that turns a lot of people away. Mm -hmm. So when we see 150 million people avoiding going to the dentist every year due to accessibility, cost, and fear, something's not working there. But then secondly, the nine out of 10 number, that covers more than just people who aren't going to the dentist. So secondly, people who are going to the dentist and spending $100 billion plus on treatments are also still seeing those issues, right? They're still part of that nine out of 10 group. So when we see the traditional system only working for a very small number of people, that's a big challenge. And that was something that really got myself, my co-founder, really excited to go out and tackle. Gotcha. And I know that makes a ton of sense to me. So one kind of a, just to summarize, a lack of like knowledge of the space and taking a personalized approach as consumers. And then two, just the the very poor relationship that human beings or people seem to have with institutions related around dental care. Correct. Yeah. And I think, again, both of those are are very much tied together in several ways. Absolutely. I would love to hear about. So in your experience, why don't people, you know, focus on the quote unquote, like what they're putting into their mouths? We get very particular about our hair and our skin, but not in so much our mouths. What have you seen? Why do you think that is? Yeah, so I think it comes back to the information we all have access to. Yeah. When we think about democratizing oral health care, we really think about the information that everyone has access to. And so how we think about the approach to bettering our oral health care first starts with what we understand and how we're educated about it. So we're really demystifying, you know, what traditionally has been a very different dynamic. Again, as I've mentioned, this power dynamic where us as patients, we feel like we have to go to the dentist every six months. We're told we have to brush and floss. But when it comes down to it and we still have problems, no one actually tells us why. Mm -hmm. So what we're doing is we're starting to take a different approach, which is about 
again, democratizing that information around our oral health care to lead to better outcomes. Because who's better to be in charge and empowered to deal with our own health care, all parts of it, than, than ourselves? Mm-hmm. I think that's a big reason why we see we see people not always doing the right things for themselves. Why isn't yet clear, right? So the why needs to be clear for people to take action. And then we need to make it super easy for people to do the right stuff. And so when we think about that, we think about the easiest access point to care starting at home, but also when we talk about in-person care, because we're not looking to replace the dentist. When we talk about in-person care, there's a lot of things that we can build into there to make a much more approachable and seamless patient experience. Absolutely. And so on this, you mentioned something earlier that I would love to hear your opinion on. As someone who used to live in Canada and had dental experience there, what was the biggest change from dental care in Canada versus here in the U.S.? And what about that surprised you? So there's actually there's a lot of similarities. When mm-hmm. we think about our healthcare system, very different. But when it comes to dental, it is also uh, a private healthcare industry and experience for patients. I think the key difference, however, is complexity. Mm-hmm. So one thing I wasn't aware of when I came to the United States is how insurance worked and how mm-hmm. networks work. It's a really funny thing to say out loud four years later, but it was a pretty big learning curve to me. And, and I talk about these things with, with my Canadian friends and yeah, it reminds me just how little we know up north about what sort of insurance, private insurance systems look like and what, what the challenges that sort of come out of those systems are. So I'll give you an example. Because there are similarities in the Canadian dental system, we also have to go out and buy our own personal insurance around dental. Mm-hmm. That's fine. But it's very easy to use. So we don't have to think about where can we use this. It's, you know, the insurance companies are accepted by all major providers, dentists, and there isn't a second thought. You book your appointment, you go, you use it, it gets paid for you by the payer, and things work as they should. But when I came here to the Boston area, I realized, whoa, 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 hold on. I have an insurance benefit that works completely different. I can't go to the dentist that I perhaps want to go to. That dentist most likely isn't in network with the insurance plan I have. So I now need to find a dentist who's in network with insurance plan. When I go to, to use the insurance, I now am seeing different levels of dentistry of people who are part of different networks and how they approach dental care can be very different. And then the worst part about it is I actually don't know what's going to be covered. So it's not just going to the dentist that once you find one and using it and having your payer pay for that treatment, there's a lot of hidden surprises. And so when I really broke down those hidden surprises with what I understood that plan to be covering, it took me weeks of breaking down with a spreadsheet, and I am a finance guy, how I could possibly use this insurance plan that I had bought, how I could actually maximize it and save money with it. It was really that difficult. I would mm-hmm. have to have studied it, understood it for those couple of weeks, and then gone out and used it very strategically for it to actually make sense for me. And then this goes back to the bigger problem. Okay, people don't buy insurance because it just doesn't make sense. So that was a revelation for me, yeah. uh, but most people know this. So No, that's wild. Yeah, absolutely. Insurance is incredibly compli- complicated and even for myself who likes to say they're they're knowledgeable of the healthcare ecosystem insurance is still very much a nightmare (laughs) so it is it's complicated and costly that's the bottom line 
Okay. So given that in contrast, what would you say or imagine what the ideal dental care experience would look like? Yeah. So it's one that's it's built for patients. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the key approach that we're taking here at Wally Health is we're not looking to build what's best for the dentist, not looking to build what's best for the payer, and we're not looking to build what's best for the employer. Now, I think those are the three groups and the three stakeholders that have always gotten the most attention. And in particular, it usually you know, comes down from the top, which is the payer. It doesn't benefit you or I at the end of the day mm-hmm. as the patient. So in an ideal world, we're really reimagining our dental experience for the patient, and we're reimagining that experience end to end. So we truly believe that the easiest access point to healthcare, in particular our oral health, and how we democratize the information starts at home. So that easy and accessible oral healthcare experience is very important, and it has to start from home. That's the starting point, and we mm-hmm. do that with technology. And I think one thing we've seen throughout the pandemic is you know, the behavioral changes and the adoption of technologies surrounding telehealth and virtual care. So this is just expected now. So we really lead our interactions with telehealth and with virtual care because providing access to an awesome, amazing, well-qualified, empathetic professional like one of our hygienists or one of our dentists right from the comfort of your couch has been showing to be a pretty magical moment for patients. So that, Nico, is where everything starts. Mm -hmm. And then we are now taking a look at that and the success we're seeing around uh, that part of the experience and now really building out how that works in the overall experience. So that end-to-end experience. And again, we are now connecting that and looking at different ways to connect that to attack the bigger problems, both which start at home, but also ultimately end up uh, at in-person care. Gotcha. So with that all starting at home, and I know you've spoken about some of the features that Wally has, but what explicitly is the services or the products that Wally actually offers consumers just so the audience can get a better idea? Yeah. So first and foremost, we're doing an at-home checkup. And that's the easiest way to put it. And that allows us to provide this customized oral health care experience and approach, which really does in an efficiently and effective way attack the goals or needs that, that an individual patient has. So it's that customization where we lean into our at-home test kit. So this, this at-home checkup starts with a test kit. Once someone receives the test kit from us, they upload results. Those results in particular, we look at just to give you an idea of what data points we're looking at. So we're looking at images. We have an in-depth questionnaire, and we're also looking at saliva. Mm -hmm. And so saliva, for example, tells us some really interesting things about the uniqueness of your mouth. Things like acidity and other markers that we look at tell us how well your saliva remineralizes and rebuilds enamel. So when we look at things like that, we're actually, and our clinicians, not myself, Mm -hmm. are able to provide back an assessment and actually engage one-on-one for that checkup, which starts at home. That's really the starting point to your experience with Wally. And then beyond there, we get into how do we address these goals? How do we address these needs that we've uncovered by going through this checkup? And that really revolves around using the right products that are on the market. There's a lot of products, mm-hmm. but try to cut through the noise there. Our hygienists help cut through the noise and also how we use the products. So our hygienists say this you know, day in and day out. We have to be using the right products at home. We have to be using them in the right way. Gotcha. And so you actually go ahead and take those results and actually give consumers recommendations for what products they should or shouldn't be using. 
That's right. Yep. And we send people custom care boxes with those products and with those instructions on how to use them, again, specific for Mm -hmm. each patient. And of course, at any time, there's always the connection, both via text or video with one of our clinicians. So we really focus around this this at-home checkup, getting people onboarded and kicked off with their custom care kit, with their virtual visit with the, the hygienist. And then it leads into a more continuous care model revolving around using the right products in the right way and ensuring all of your questions are being answered. Because what we've learned, Nico, is that Beyond just getting an at-home checkup, mm-hmm. really, the, in reality, the goals we have associated with our oral, oral health aren't things we can just address in one day, right? So we can definitely sure. address issues and we can provide early kind of magic moments when it comes to that care experience. But these are usually things and items and needs and goals that are addressed over a much longer period of time. And so we really work with people not only initially to get them started, but engage them over many months and and as we're still going, we'll turn into years with individual patients. Gotcha. No, that makes a ton of sense. Sorry, I'm trying to figure out my next question. Going from there, and I don't want you guys to have to give away too much of the secret sauce, but are there products that people should just be inherently avoiding? Or is it all very unique to the individual? There's So what I will say at a high level, I won't you know mention names, but there's two things we look at when it comes to when we have patient interactions, right? So we're always looking at what is clinically going to be most effective to address Mm -hmm. their needs and their goals based on those unique components of their mouth. But there's also this challenge of addressing the trends, right? The consumer trends that people are aware of in the market. So what we like to really do a good job at is bring both of those things together or not. And so when we think about certain trends, when we think about, for example, a charcoal toothpaste, right? This is a pretty big trend. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you guys have tried it. The issue with charcoal toothpaste, which all of our hygienists will tell us is it's usually highly abrasive. Yes. So what seems as a great trend, Mm -hmm. go out, get whiter teeth with this type of product, Mm -hmm. you can actually end up doing a lot more damage to your enamel than good. And what really is the sad part of all of this is you would engage a product like that to be getting whiter teeth, but the long-term effects will actually do things which will provide you uh, much, much less whiter teeth than, than you're starting with. So I think, again, back to your question, it's all about the unique goals, mm-hmm. the unique aspects of an individual's mouth, teeth, and other areas of their life. What can someone afford based on other components of our life? We really take that personalized approach to make recommendations that are both clinically effective, but on point with what they're looking to get out of a product. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So that was actually something I was hoping you discuss just because I studied chemical engineering back in undergrad and charcoal or carbon is very much used in a lot of chemical stripping processes. And when I saw that people were using it in toothpaste, I couldn't believe it because I imagine just we literally use it for like oil and things like that. And so I was like, I can't imagine what that's doing to your teeth. So for those of you listening, avoid charcoal toothpaste products. And if you actually really want white teeth or whatever your goals are, make sure you check out Wally Health and they'll get you set up yeah. in the right direction. <laughs> that, that's exactly it. Thanks for the plug. But no, but that's the reality of it, right? Our enamel is what makes our teeth white. We don't want to get rid of it. Absolutely. And so I want to go switch from more uh, background perspective to more of a more tactical perspective of how you built the company 
and what those processes look like and which some of the pain points that you deal as a startup. And so one of the first questions that we get a lot of people asking in the digital health space is like, how do we hire specialists? I don't have a dental background or medical degree, but the services I want to offer require that. And I see that Wally actually employs hygienists. What does that process look like? How do you manage that? Any advice for people also looking to hire specialists for their practices, et cetera? We work very closely with a lot of incredible dentists from all different specialties, both here in the Boston area and across the country. And we also work with hygienists, again, both in the area here, but also across the country. And and these clinicians are leaders, right? These are key union leaders who are are really at the forefront of a lot of different things when it comes to dentistry and, and what's happening with our oral health. How did we start working with them? I think it just comes down to the mission we're on. And does that mission resonate with other really important people that will have to help you progress in that mission. And we knew from day one, myself and my co-founder, we were passionate problem solvers. I'm coming more from the business side. My co-founder who's coming from the technology side, has built amazing products at companies that, that we all know about and led teams there. And we both just had really happy and emotional oral health care experiences. But we knew we had to build the company alongside the experts. And mm-hmm. so very early on, we went out and we started talking to the experts, right? And and I think that's step number one. You don't need to have it figured out, but you need to go out and start putting things in front of people to see what makes sense. And so we really had just built up our story mm-hmm. and without overthinking it, we just started calling people up and meeting with dentists and putting it in front of them and saying, does this sound interesting to you? Does this sort of thing make sense? And it turned out overwhelmingly, yes. Mm-hmm. The big problem of what insurance companies are doing for our oral health care is affecting how dentists deliver care to patients. It is affecting how employers provide benefits to their employees. And all that is flowing downhill to us at the patient level. Yeah. And that's great about getting people excited and on board with your mission. And you don't have to answer this. We can cut it out as well. But I would love to learn about like, how do you go about actually hiring dentists or hygienists to actually analyze some of those results that you've been getting? So it's a little bit of a mix. Okay. Perfect. And then for the second or switching gears a bit, as a company that is direct to consumer, the best part or direct to customers, the number one thing you really need is customers. So the first question is, how do you go about reaching those customers? And then I have a follow up question based on your answer. Yeah, I mean, that's the trick. I think it's you have to tell a story that resonates and you have to say it in terms that make sense for people. So we definitely have a lot of scars here. We've been out there testing a lot of different things throughout our journey. And I think through those mistakes and through those stumbling, those stumbling steps that you end up taking as founders when you're building your company early on, hopefully it's giving you some signal and some insight that you ultimately start to build a core thesis around. You start to you know generate that unique consumer insight that is going to act as your North Star in how you start to approach things like messaging and and positioning. So I think we failed a lot. We learned a lot of tough lessons, but at the end of the day, that really helped us refine how it was we were talking about what we were doing. And the moment you talk in terms that people understand and hopefully it's solving a problem that they're having, there should be a reaction to that and it should Mm -hmm. be a strong reaction. Absolutely. 
go for it? So, yeah, I think there's scrappy ways to get your message out. I would go out and I would hustle. I, I think paid is something that, you know, some founders resort to early. Mm-hmm. For us, we've been fortunate that we've been basically entirely all unpaid. We've been able to really? just find areas that, that we can test our, our messaging in and it's doing quite well. And I think that's a really strong signal that what it is basing our messaging off of that core consumer insight that we picked up early on is the right one, right? It's nice validation. No, it's fantastic. Being able to do anything unpaid is really um, impressive and surprising in a direct-to-consumer space. So where have you guys been, if you're comfortable talking about it, just like some of the channels, is it more of word of mouth and people sharing marketing content? What has that looked like for you guys? Yeah, so it is word of mouth. There's been a lot of sharing going on, of course, like word of mouth these days. There's a lot of sharing on Facebook, Instagram. That helps out a lot. But when we look at specific uh, patient groups or patient personas, there's definitely some that we resonate with much, much stronger than others, even though we're going after a broad problem here. And finding out how to insert yourself, how to find kind of insert wedges into those specific groups is really important early on because it's those groups who will be more engaged with what it is you're doing. They're not just buying stuff, right? Mm-hmm. They're buying an experience and they're going to really be helpful at not only giving you incredible feedback and helping shape what you're building it and how you're building it, but they're actually going to go and talk to 10 people, right? Mm -hmm. So if you really focus on what Paul Graham, I know, has put out there a few (laughs) times, it's like, it's way better to have a hundred customers who really adore what it is you're building versus many more. I think it's upwards of a million he talks about that just what you're doing. Yeah. Because if you think about those hundred customers and them driving 10% week over week growth, you start to really accumulate some serious numbers quite quickly. Absolutely. I know that makes a ton of sense. No, absolutely couldn't agree more. What was something when you started marketing and getting feedback from customers, what was something that really surprised you about the process? Yeah, about the process of of um, either the feedback that they gave you or when you were going direct to consumer, did you think, oh, we're going to do this campaign and it's going to do great and it didn't? Or you're like, oh, I don't know if this is our strongest material, but then it was like very popular for whatever reason. Do you have any interesting moments like that? Tons of moments like that. We're, we're always surprised. I think as founders, you, you get so close to what it is you're building mm-hmm. and why you're building it that it's always really important to be empathetic of your customer. And so we're to blame on this, of course. Mm-hmm. Like most other founders, you spend 12, 14, 16 hours a day on, on one single thing and you start to see it a little bit differently than your customer who will literally be thinking about your product or your solution for seconds at best. So you are just a minute sliver in sort of the grand scheme of their life. But as, as founders, we sometimes do this thing where we think we're really important and we're a huge part of that person's life. <laughs> totally wrong. So it, it creates these messages, these value propositions, these assumptions that are way off. And so it's really important to drill into the team culture, to, to how we think about testing mm-hmm. um, in the early phases, to be empathetic for what the customer, what the patient is seeing and feeling. I think that's a really key part. So it, it leads to a lot of surprises. The other thing too is just doing. I, yeah. I think we, we always have to be executing. We have to be testing. And I've seen other sort of companies be a little bit more strategic around this. I think the fastest way to finding those silver bullet solutions is 
is to go out, roll up your sleeves, execute, fall on your face a few times and, and take the learnings. And that will really help mold the winning solution. So it's like when something does finally click, there's always a few things that came together nicely for it to click. But you can really look back on, okay, it, it actually clicked because we took this different angle, which was informed by these 10 other tests we had done, which we had failed at, but informed the, the successful way to do it. Gotcha. So really just honing in and testing and trying to be empathetic. Do you have any advice on how founders can be more empathetic or take a step back after thinking about their product for 16 hours every day, eight, eight days a week? Yeah, it's that's hard. I think some of I think good founders have some self awareness, which is which is really important. I think there's little tricks you can do. It's show it to people, right? Mm-hmm. Don't let's not get pulled up uh, in our basement working on things for too long. It's show it to your dog, your cat, um, your friends, <laughs> your family. Literally, just put this in front of people and see how people react to them. There's no harm in doing that. And you might just be completely surprised that when you put something in front of someone else, what it looks like to them. And and it's going to change how you're thinking about it right away. Love it. Absolutely. Okay. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and pass it over to Iman. All right. I like the advice of showing it to people. I think that's great advice. I really like the talking track of talking about the customer and the user and basically like really honing in on the patient experience. I'm curious as an entrepreneur and similar to the sentiment that you had mentioned about Paul Graham, about finding the people that really like your product. How did you guys first go about finding that first user or that ideal user? Was there a target? And then did you, the the person that ended up using it, was that actually within the the definitions of your target? So we didn't initially go after a specific target. We Mm -hmm. went after an insight that we had begun to gather very early on. And the insight sounded like this. It was people care about their oral health, but we're not doing a lot of the right things. We're not going to the dentist. We're not brushing and flossing and using and doing the right things at home. Not because we don't care, Mm -hmm. but because we don't have access to the right information. Mm -hmm. And the traditional system we do have access to isn't working for the large majority of us. It's working for a very small group of people. And so that is what's really fueled us this whole way, understanding that people do care about their oral health and they're looking for a different way, a different system to help them on their journey to achieve their goals, to have a healthy, beautiful smile. And beauty really comes in so many different ways, right? We actually resonate most with the people who attribute beauty to health. And we also feel the same way. It's like when you're not thinking about pain, dry mouth, sensitive teeth, you're having a healthier mouth and you're actually exuding a, a sense of beauty that we hear time and time again from our customers right? So and our patients. That's, it's really important. So I think going back, back to the question you had, Iman, you know, we did, we use that insight to test messaging. And because I think the danger of testing too specifically or too narrow initially is that you're not thinking flexibly enough on where you actually might land. So I yeah. think it's okay to have targets, but you want to keep an open mind. So we went out, we cast the net. We actually thought we were going to appeal to a certain group of people very heavily. Turns out it was actually a different group, right? wow. but, but just knowing that and keeping our eyes open to that is is what you know is really fascinating to see and just going out and testing i think we're always going to be surprised with the the results that come back 
Mm-hmm. That's awesome that you guys, you guys were following the analytics and the data behind the user feedback in that your initial target actually was different than the people that actually, or the users that ended up using the product. I noticed something on the site around like getting a free kit to try it. Was that something that came about when growing the user base of people that you noticed and you saw traction with? I'm curious where that idea came from because I found it pretty interesting. Yes, that was an earlier message that we'd put out. And I would say that was one of the more broad, broadly messaged tests that that we had ran. So that when you put something out for free, you're going to appeal to a lot of different types of people. So it's the opposite of going really narrow and deep. It was a wide and and surface level net that we had thrown out there. Mm-hmm. A lot of noise came back, but a lot of action came back, right? So we caught a lot of stuff and we had to be very smart about how we cut through that noise and how we filtered and actually extracted the love, right? The people who really do love what we're doing and why they love that. So we were able to skim that out, but it's not easy. And you have to run a very regimented test process to get there. And you have to have the data love of being able to look at everything you're seeing, not just qualitatively, but the numbers. Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. That is a kind of like wide net approach. I found it pretty fascinating because it certainly appeals to maybe I don't think I would fall into the target base, but would be pretty interested in learning about dental care and perhaps could be somebody that hops onto the product. But I'm glad that you looked at both perspectives. Oh, we saw traction with the user base, but we also tried this wide net approach to see where is there like the best amount of, where is there affiliation with our product? And was there another perhaps group that we missed when we were iterating with other types of targets? So that's awesome. Yeah. And I'll definitely check that out. That's pretty cool. The free testing kit. I have tried the charcoal thing before, so I now know not to do that. <laughs> We had a good idea though, right? Like this wasn't where we were starting. So we we had a pretty good idea of the different groups of people out there. And we knew that there was going to be a fence somewhere. We knew that there was going to be like a high need group that was going to be yanking our solution and paying for it and really engaging it. We knew that group was going to exist, Mm -hmm. but casting a really wide net, it really focused in who that group was. But then it also told us where that fence was positioned. So the next group over from the high need group that's sort of sitting on top of the fence, what's important to them and who's on what side of it. And then the other group that's completely on the other side. So getting clarity around that learning has been really, you know, incredible for us. And it's really exciting to be moving forward with that information because now the targeted fund can really, can really take off. No, absolutely. I find that like sometimes with more data, it sometimes gets harder to really know what's the priority of a product. You clearly have an idea of, we believe like these, like when you had said saliva, I was like, oh, that's intriguing. Saliva is really important to your mouth. Like I didn't know that. I didn't know it was like a marker for your health or your kind of like oral health. I'm curious, were there metrics or were there like product details that became more prioritized as you found who the target user group was? Did you change things about the product? That must have been a hard process, I would feel, getting all that feedback. Yeah, very challenging. And I appreciate your point about the saliva test. That's exactly what we've been seeing. Very intriguing. But the really cool part is there's actually a lot of depth to it. And based on our clinical expertise and, and process, 
Yeah, there's definitely been a ton we've learned from this test, from these early tests that, that we had been bringing patients through. We learned where those magic moments really were and then how far away they were from the patients, like how difficult it was yeah. to get to those magic moments. It's incredible when you start looking at very simple things like that. When you're really selling an experience, you have different parts to that experience which will provide benefit and they provide a per- perceived benefit, but you don't really know how the patient or a customer really sequences those benefits. Like what are the terms that they actually receive those benefits in? So how do you actually say those and talk about those benefits around an experience to to someone that actually makes sense? And so I think that's where a lot of our learnings have been because we, we have the core pillars to what that experience is, but we've really played a lot around how we position those different features, those benefits. And it's been really interesting to learn directly from patients. So I'll give you an example, right? It's we see magic moments at different part of the experience, but in parts that without going too specifically in parts that people actually don't want to buy up front. It's really fascinating. So what people want to buy usually are, are silver bullets. People want solutions. People want the answers to their questions. But when it comes down to it, they're wowed in some of the other parts of the experience. And so I think that's been really fascinating to learn that, but it's also presented some really incredible challenges uh, when it comes to how we market and how we talk about our product and how we onboard and bring people through the entire journey. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I find that patient experience really fascinating. I, For me, I thought the maybe the hardship would be in the actual like product and the offering, but it seems like there was more insight in the patient kind of getting the product and how do they onboard? How do they like get those magic moments that you had mentioned, which is super interesting. Was there something that surprised you? Uh, you don't have to go into much detail, but with what you consider like a magic moment, was there something that you expected this to be the magic moment, but you found that perhaps it was something else alongside the product, like the user journey? I think so. We've always known what the magic moments are, but I, again, it's, it's getting people there quickly mm-hmm. and getting them there in, in terms that make sense for them. So that's really where the challenge has been to provide a customized oral healthcare experience at home. There's a few different pieces here, right? There's the testing, there's products, there's access to a hygienist virtually, and all of those kind of work hand in hand with each other, but they work in very different ways and they're perceived very differently by patients. Mm -hmm. So for example, we know magic moments happen when there's that one-on-one connection with a professional, but that's not necessarily what people are wanting to do right away. Unless you really know what you're going to talk about with the professional, you might not have a reason or a desire to talk to them. Again, back to you're looking for a solution. You're not necessarily looking to talk to someone. But once you're able to bring and tie all of those pieces together in a way that makes sense, that's when we've just seen our solution being adopted in a totally different way. Oh, that's awesome. I I find it interesting. It's the one-on-one connection. It's something like innately human about that, which is pretty epic to hear that it was the conversation with the provider. So that's great. Awesome. Yeah. Look, we're trying to do our best. You know, we think that creating this custom experience um, for each and every one of us, there there are no two mouths that are the same. So why would we treat it like that Mm -hmm. is really important. And it's that approach that really makes people feel special. In, in the healthcare experience that, frankly, I haven't met anyone today, and I've been talking to thousands and thousands of people who feel like their dental care experience is one that makes them feel special historically. It's very different. And I think that's you know been really important and exciting for us to execute. 
Absolutely. I'm actually now more curious on like the provider side. How was it conversing with dentists and those kinds of like dental practitioners to coming on board and building out that supply of people that can potentially talk to these types of customers? Were they apprehensive? Were they into it? I'm curious. We've had some people in the podcast talk about the at times the barriers to getting doctors or healthcare practitioners on to some of these digital solutions or technology solutions. Curious your experience. Yeah. I, I think it goes back to the core story and what, what we're doing for patients. Most dentists care the most about their patients. That's the bottom line. And that patient first approach is why our story has resonated with dentists, with hygienists. Mm -hmm. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not all of them. And there's different persona groups when it comes to professionals, uh, clinicians, like you know, which ones think differently about innovative solutions. Some are more apprehensive because they're making good money. They have a very successful business going and yeah. why would they want to mess around with, with a model that's working for them? Mm -hmm. But we do see that the, the majority of professionals do understand the problem that we're tackling on behalf of patients and for patients. And those professionals are very excited to be you know, giving us feedback, helping out, or even working with us. That is awesome to hear. I like the patient first approach. I think that's like a new sentiment that we haven't really heard from of letting it be more patient led. It sounds very correlative to the things I hear in like the software world where it's like user led. It's the user wanting to try the software. It's the user wanting to bring this up to their superior to bring into an org or bring into their workplace. I find that awesome that it's very similar. It's like a weird connection between healthcare and like how technology runs. I guess it's all about being like user first, patient first and providing value to the potential like customer. So that's awesome to hear. Yeah, I, I think just to tack onto that, it's it, because no one matters more. And when we think about reinventing a, a care experience from end to end and building a durable and long lasting company that has a ton of, you know, a ton of value for people. It's exactly that it's for people because no one matters more than you or I or Nico and, and everyone else as patients, as dental care patients. And that's the bottom line, right? Like, why should we have big billion dollar dental insurance companies dictating what type of treatment I should be able to receive or influencing how many billings I get treatment planned when I go in for my next visit. It's ridiculous. And why should dental insurance really only be accessible to employees of companies? It's because employers have to pay for these things. They're not happy about it. But that means employees get things like dental insurance, which, as I just alluded to, doesn't end up working many times in, in the best interest of them. And then you have all of us out there, many more freelancers and consultants than before the pandemic. And so you have this huge group of people that buying dental insurance just doesn't make sense. It's, it's costly. And, and as I just alluded to, it doesn't have your best interest in mind. So what are, you, like, what are your options? And, and I think that's where our patient first approach is really important. And that's something that is going to reinvent that experience from the ground up. We're not just looking to come in and work with a payer, or work with an employer, or work with a dentist to try to create band-aid solutions. We want to actually move the needle and reinvent. And it has to be done from the patient first. Absolutely. We're super on board with that model. And like you said, like <laughs> patients, basically, I guess it's basically, it should be patient first, but it's weird that it's happening now. And it, it, that's more of a sentiment of the past decade and a testament to digital health and why there is disruption. I guess to pivot from like the supply, we've talked about the customer, you've talked about the core story. I'm curious, like 
on the stuff you're working on now and the future on Wally Health. How have you gone about building a team and growing your organization and your business? I'm curious how that's been as a founder and as an entrepreneur. Yes, we're definitely really lucky. We have an awesome core team here at Wally. Uh, we have a large, you know, group of supporters, investors, advisors mm-hmm. who are also very passionate and aligned with with the mission we're on. So that's been we do it without them. And so I think we're super lucky for that. And we're lucky to be at that point we were where we are expanding our team. So definitely we're we're looking for sort of a, a few key roles uh, that we're looking to fill. But I think more from a high level, just how do we as founders at startups think about building teams? It's it's a challenge, right? It's always a huge challenge. I think the nice thing about what we're able to access as founders now is also flexible options. So what we're able to do with amazing freelancers and consultants out there to really plug holes before we need to hire someone full time to own it. I think it has been really helpful for us. And I think that's the approach we've taken. So we're a small, nimble team still. We like to feel the pain and we like to own all areas of the business first before we start to dish it off to someone else. But I think once you're at that point where you're growing quite fastly and you are looking to expand, you got to start dishing things off and you have to start expanding the team. But a really great sort of way to do that is to lean into more flexible options uh, to fill those holes first and allow you to, I guess, find solutions for your team in a scrappier, more capitally efficient way. And then when it makes sense, you can fill it with, with that unicorn team member that that you really need and and are looking for. No, awesome. Have you found that like the capital efficient way has led to the unicorn member or have you found it to be more of the almost a contractor type of model or like a part-time type of model being a good filler as a way to test if the need is growing and then going back and trying to find that full-time hire or that kind of Mm. full-time person. I feel like it's hard like today, maybe today it's a little bit easier where startups are the talk of work cultures and people want to join startups or create their own, but it's still hard like in terms of risk and getting buy-in. Anyway, that was like a two-fold question, but wondering how you use the contractor model and then um, how you get like buy-in from people to join you guys. You're going to love my answer for that one. But awesome. first, I'll answer the, the first one, which was yeah, the contractor model. So I think contractors, freelancers are very happy with what they're doing. They're happy to be freelancers. And that's great. So I think personally, we haven't seen freelancer relationships convert into those like unicorn employee, like full-time engagements. And But that's okay. I think what it does teach us is, so it does a couple things, right? So it doesn't totally offload an area of the business that shouldn't be prematurely offloaded, you still have oversight and you're still having your finger on the pulse. You're still feeling a bit of the pain. You're still doing things. For example, you know, we're working with a really awesome growth marketing agency. And look, I still have to go in there and do a lot of the Facebook ad copy that we're testing. I'm still rolling up my sleeves and, and getting in there and understanding it. But that's really important because if I was just offload that completely right now, I wouldn't be learning as much as I am learning about really really important parts of the business that are still still critical for us as the founding team to know. And so I think you know, that's really important. So when we work with contractors or freelancers, it helps us almost to get a solution in place, start learning about what it is that one day we will need to put in there full time to solve that. But the other part of the question you asked, like, how do we get people to buy into the mission? I think it's, it's, it is, it's about our team. It's about the story, the mission that we're going out and executing on. 
So whether it's myself, we are all four of us, like the core founding team members, and we are all very much aligned. We're all telling the same story. And so when we're looking for a role and we're engaging with people around different roles, we're doing a few things, but we're really looking to see, is that mission something that's resonating? Right, because you hit it on the head, Iman. I think it's trendy or sexy right now, perhaps to be, you know, joining a startup or, or looking to get experience in a startup. The reality is it's actually very unsexy. It's like you go to work at a startup, not because you're gonna make more money, you're gonna make far less money, you're gonna work five times as hard, and some days you aren't gonna know which way is up or which way is down. It's gonna be really frustrating. As much as I love to say, when we're looking to land and land the the sort of dream team member or that future consultant, as much as we talk about our mission and kind of sell that, we actually do something really interesting in that conversation is we actually sell against it too. So this was something that um, my co-founder, Stipe, explained very early on in, in our company, which was the best way to test if someone's really wanting to join a startup and is going to be excited about that sort of crazy environment that, that they're going to be a part of is talk about of it because if someone is still there wanting to to join after they've been talked out of it it might be showing something really strong about their hustle and their desire to be a part of it that's awesome advice thank you for answering that for me tyler i feel like we don't get the um reality of the startup hustle sometimes i think at times it's talked about but in terms of getting people on board and giving them that pushback of hey this is really hard stuff like Yes, there is an opportunity to accrue value in the future, but there is a lot of sacrifice at the beginning, especially compensation-wise. That's a great like tester. Uh, try to talk them out of it and see if they're still passionate about joining. Perhaps that's a sign. Great. I have one last question before my kind of ultimate question that I ask at the pod at the end of the podcast, which was you touched on uh, social media and kind of the growth marketing agency. I'm curious how social media has played into your kind of story as a company. It's interesting to me because I think there's like this new wave of consumer health and social media that didn't exist before. And I'm interested in its implications, like a growing digital health company. Have you seen it be a really great source of growth or a source of branding and like reputation building? Just curious of how it's played into your story. Yeah. So again, I'll probably answer differently than other companies would talk about this because for us, we're still very much growing organically, which we're very fortunate to be doing. We're not looking to dump a lot of money into accelerating growth through through paid acquisition at this point. We're still learning around those unit economics to make sure we're pretty dialed in before we turn that on. We're not too far away from that, but it's something we're not super excited to go to really quickly. Frankly, like we're just seeing incredible growth organically and through word of mouth. So pretty fortunate. But what social has been really awesome for us is testing. So again, back to how do you figure out what works? So it's just another extension of our test process, right? Like you can go put things in front of your significant other, your family, show them over a Zoom meeting if you're not able to see them in person and ask them what they think about different things you're building, how you're talking about them. Or you can go create Facebook and Instagram ads, talk about what you're doing, see what click-through rates are. Like there's so many things you can do with social media to test messaging and to test sort of the value and how you're talking about it and really take that that data first approach on, on what those results are that you're seeing come back. It's a super effective, super efficient and nimble way to go out and test messaging at, at large scales. And we all have access to it. 
Couldn't agree more. Yeah, I feel like the whole, there's been a really strong theme of, at least from my perspective so far, is just testing is so important. It's just so core to a startup in its growth phase or even in its organic growth phase that it's well worth it. And that's a great way to funnel into my last question of the show, which is how do you see Wally Health growing and where do you see the future of digital health going? Yeah, so as I've probably touched on a few times, so here at Wally, we really have our eyes on the, the long term vision, which is around end to end dental care experience. So, what we're doing at home, how we ultimately visit the dentist, how all those pieces are connected, and really the knowledge, how we pay for it, all of these things that sort of surround that experience, we're going out to tackle. I think how we feel about digital health and healthcare in general is, again, very much things need to be rewritten and things need to be built for the people who matter most, which is us as patients. I think, you know, what we're dealing with, it's not an easy, you know, it's not an easy goal to, to go and execute on because what we're dealing with is a very messed up system that has large players, a lot of money involved and a lot of wasteful um, spending and costs. And it's really hard to just say you're going to rip all of it up and build something from scratch. So I think we're out there executing on on our journey and the path that we've identified as the one that makes sense. And I think it's going to be reflected in, in all of the future of digital health and healthcare in general. We're going to see these direct-to-patient first approaches being built using technology, creating accessibility with that technology. Like virtual care has just been an amazing thing that's taken off over the last nine months in particular because it really it connects us to information it connects us to care in a way that just has never been done before and that's a really incredible thing and so i think if you start to chew away on accessibility you inherently start to drive affordability because you are you know you're inherently lowering costs when you're substituting three dentist visits for one and two virtual visits it's a lot it's a lot lower cost and heck, it's a lot better experience for the patient who didn't have to spend 20x the amount of time and money to do that. So that's how we see the future of healthcare. It's going to get much more patient first. It's, it's going to be a much more streamlined and delightful patient experience because we're going to use things like technology to, to benefit what's best for us as patients. Great to hear it. Thank you so much, Tyler, for sharing your experiences at Wally Health. Yeah, I know your thoughts on digital health, the company, and the founding of your startup. I appreciate it a lot. Nico, do you have anything else to add or would you yeah. like to add anything? Final question for me is, uh, Tyler, if people are interested in learning more about Wally Health, where should they go? Yeah, go to www.highwally.co. That's C-O, not com. <laughs> That's the place to go. You can check us out. You can sign up. Yeah, we'd love to have you as one of our latest members. It's, we, we're trying to make it as easy as possible for people to test it and find the value they may or may not be looking for. So definitely come check it out. If you have any feedback, you want to get in touch with me directly, it's, it's first name at highwally.co. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tyler. If you've made it this far in the episode, congratulations. You're one of our super fans. If you go to our podcast website, you can find our email. And if you reach out to us via email with one of your takeaways from today's episode, we'll give you a free 30-minute call where we'll answer any and all questions you have around digital health or startups.